A passage of scripture that allows for you and for me to do that is found in 1 Corinthians, where in the first chapter, and beginning in verse 18, down through verse 25, a very powerful paragraph is developed for you and for me to think very seriously and concretely about the cross of Jesus Christ, which is what I would like to do with you this morning in our brief time together before the bread and the cup are to be served. And in this first chapter, what you and I find is that Paul is going to have to confront the false wisdom and the false power of the world in which he knows the Roman Empire and allow for the richness of the wisdom of God and the power of God to be expressed very profoundly through the work of the cross, which he seeks to be able to expound. So picking it up now in this 18th verse of this first chapter of Paul's writings to the Corinthians, he pens these thoughts. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved... It is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. These are profound words. What we've got to ask is for God to make clear what his word is, what his will is, as we seek to keep him first. We're preparing our hearts this morning for the bread and for the cup. Let's look to our Lord in prayer. My Father, on this, your Lord's day, we want to rivet our attention on what matters most. Because we know in the coming days there are going to be a lot of competing thoughts, conflicting priorities. And what we want, Father, is to keep centered upon who matters most. Jesus Christ. So thank you for the bread. Thank you for the cup. And thank you for the word of God, which gives understanding to the significance of the bread and the cup. And how all this points to Jesus. Warm these hearts. 
engage these minds, shape these wills. Because again, Father, we've come here now to see Jesus, Him only. We pray this again now in Jesus' name. Amen. They describe a particular situation where they found themselves in a difficult, difficult climate. A town, they write, were under fog and curfew. The town seemed deserted, shrouded in darkness and silence. We were escorted into a building full of men, most of them in combat fatigues and looking fatigued at that. Several of them smiled and embraced like old comrades. On the wall in the building, we saw an image of Jesus Christ. And I made note of that. Hospitality ensued, consisting naturally of Turkish coffee and tea and the likes. For here we had found Christians wrestling with their role in military conflict. Those who had not fled or been killed or sought protection from the regime. As we sat by the fire, the hand of the local Christian, quote-unquote, military commander, a bearded man reached across to grab hold of an exposed cross. In a grave tone, he said, Al-Qaeda. And then he dragged an index finger along his own neck with a grisly sound effect. The room exploded in laughter. And as I reached to conceal the cross... Everyone in the room lunged forward to say, No! Their message was clear. Yes, the cross may cost you your life, but it should never be hidden. As I came across that article, my thoughts naturally went to this passage of Scripture that you and I find in today's study worth pressing upon our own hearts. Because Paul himself wanted to press this passage upon the hearts of the Corinthian people who seemed to have a tendency to want to conceal that cross as do so many even in this country today. So what I want to do with you is to look very carefully at this passage of Scripture, this paragraph. And together, what we're going to do is to draw three significant functions that this cross explicates for you and for me that has direct bearing upon the way in which we're to go about living for Jesus Christ. Now, the first function is flowing out of verse 18, and I think I need to read the verse before we develop the function. And the verse reads like this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, you're a discerning person, and right away, what you recognized is that one verse 
encapsulate powerful, powerful thought processes is that there seems to be a dividing line here. Isn't there? On one hand, there seems to be those who are perishing. On the other hand, there's a description of those who are being saved. And we've got the cross right there in the middle of it all, don't we? So it leads to this first function found in verse 18, which we're going to develop like this, number one, that the cross of Jesus Christ divides, divides. Separating the perishing from those being saved. Now, we need to look at this a little more carefully because when you and I examine the significance of the cross of Jesus Christ, it has direct, direct bearing upon each and every one of us, you see. Because it's what I will call here the dividing line of humanity, the dividing line of humanity. It has this way of creating division in a world that's seeking some form of unification. But now notice very carefully with me the one side of this divide. It reads, for the word of the cross of Christ is folly to those who are perishing. The word, logos. The cross. It doesn't say the word of a particular government. It doesn't say the word of a particular political system. It doesn't say the word of a particular worldview or of a particular philosophy. No, it gets us to the core issue of life itself. It is the word of the cross. And you might, and I might think, well, it ought to say it is the word of the cross which unites. Because in this world that emphasizes the high virtue of tolerance, this world simultaneously is looking for a way to unify through tolerance. And here we have the God, the sovereign God, the holy God, who has the audacity then to position a cross in the midst of it all. And in this natural tendency in our culture to want to conceal that cross... We find that a writer in the Middle East pens this thought. The cross may cost you your life, but it should not be hidden. And so here now is Paul, and he wants to make absolutely certain in this robust, high-cultured setting known as Corinth, that this blood-stained cross remains central to their lives. Question, is it central to yours? Because I think America is very, very similar to Corinth. It's interesting that it is the word, it is the logos of the cross, not the logos of some pundit, some of some professor, some philosopher. It is the cross, you see. But furthermore, it is folly to those who are perishing. Which means then, as one who loves Jesus as Lord and Savior, 
When I listen to one who does not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior talk about Christianity, I have to accept the fact that they are looking at through the lens of folly. And that means one of two things. Either they view the work of Jesus Christ on that cross as insufficient, desperately in need of adding our works to Christ's work, that's the religionist who's unsaved. Or else that say that other person may view the cross of Jesus Christ as unnecessary. Simply want to replace the idea of human sinfulness with the assumption of human goodness. That is the secular unbeliever. You see. But what the religious unbeliever and the secular unbeliever share in common is that they're perishing and that their view of the cross is described by Paul here is folly. But rather than trying to retreat from people who view it this way, this gives you and me an opportunity to understand, and what is it? What is it in their worldview that causes them to view this as folly and look for a starting point to be able to move in and talk seriously about the gravity of what matters most, that blood-stained cross. Now, if you love Jesus, then you're on the other side of this dividing line, you see. For it goes on to say, but to us who are being saved, this is powerful, it is the power of God. The same thing that he would write, Paul, to the people in Rome, that is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And he wrote in the same decade, both the Corinthian letters as well as the Roman letter. Now, I would have thought, wouldn't you, that because the Greek culture valued wisdom so highly, he would have ended that particular verse by talking about us being saved, it is the wisdom of God. But no, he chooses to use the Greek word dunamis. We get the word dynamite from. It is the explosiveness of God's redemptive work being described here that frankly divides humanity. It's that blood-stained cross. I was struck by an article from a historian named William Prescott. He's describing an incident in the career of Francisco Bizarro, the Spanish invader of Peru. Because at a moment of crisis, Pizarro drew his sword and traced a line with it on the sand from east to west. His troops would have to choose sides. Then turning toward the south, Pizarro said, Friends and comrades, on that side are toil, hunger, nakedness, drenching storm, desertion and death. On this side, ease and pleasure. There lies Peru with its riches, here Panama and its poverty. Choose each man what best becomes a brave Castilian. For my part, I go south. 
In other words, what he did for people was to create a dividing line. This is what the cross does for you and me. So we have an evangelistic burden for those who view the cross as folly, because behind that view of folly is the heart of the perishing. And for those who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and embrace embrace the substitutionary work of Christ on their cross, we know that this is not the power of humanity. This is the dunamis of God, you see. And he and he alone has the right to establish a line of division. And now the critical question is, and on which side of the line do you stand? Because the cross of Jesus Christ, number one, divides, separating the perishing from those being saved. But now there is a second function, and it flows here out of verse 19 through 21. And I'll simply give it to you, and then this time we'll develop the text. The number two, the cross of Jesus Christ confronts. Challenging the wisdom of the world with God's word. I want you to see the collision between worldly wisdom and divine word. So he's going to use an example, and it's going to flow out of verse 19, which is rooted in your Older Testament in Isaiah chapter 29, verse 14. Paul now, very word-based, when wanting to talk about the cross of Christ, as should you and as should I, he says, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Notice the I wills. This is God at work. Noticing that he says here, I will destroy, I will thwart. You look at that, and you realize that this is part of the power of God described in the prior verse that is now being written about in this next verse. Now, as a student of the Word, which I know you want to be, and I know that you are, you should be asking yourself some critical questions such as, and why did Paul choose of all the Old Testament verses this verse? In Isaiah chapter 29 and verse 14, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. What Paul does is he looks around at the scene in Corinth where they valued wisdom. Greek wisdom in particular, takes them to the Old Testament and talks about God destroying the wisdom and challenges them to recall what was happening behind the scenes as those words to Isaiah were being inspired. A 30-second review. Hezekiah was king in Judah. Ruthless forces, known as the Assyrians, were descending upon the Judaic people. Hezekiah has these counselors around him, and they're supposed to be the men of wisdom, offering wisdom on how to handle a difficult situation. Will Hezekiah listen to God? Or will Hezekiah listen to the wisdom of the world? 
the counselors guide him to wanting him to enter into a treaty with Egypt so that the Egyptians can come to the rescue of Judah and save Judah from the Assyrians. They don't counsel Hezekiah to turn to God and ask for God to rescue the people of Judah from the Assyrians. They counsel that we turn to Egypt rather than to God. Bring it home, 2014. The wisdom of this world offers substitutes for God. Just as then those counselors substituted Egypt for God, you and I now in 2014 have got to ask, in what way, in what shape, in what form, am I prone when I face critical issues, practically speaking, in everyday life? Am I looking for something or someone else to come to the rescue instead of God? That's what's behind, lurking behind this passage. So now then, now then, after offering the scriptural background in verse 19, Paul then develops rhetorical questions in verse 20, doesn't he? And here they come. Where is the one who is wise, he asks. Now, the wise in that time period were those who were known to have a well-developed worldview based on choices and values and priorities and so on. But the problem was they may have a coherent worldview, but they didn't have the cross at the center of their worldview. And their worldview would come crashing down without the sovereign God through the working of the cross at the center of what would hold up their structured thought process. Do you have the cross at the center of your worldview? A second question. Where is the scribe? Now he turns to the religious theologians, professors, teachers, experts in God's law, those who value heritage, those who value tradition, and ask the question, and where is the cross in relationship to your, to your teachings, to your heritage, to your traditions? Without it, they collapse. A third question. Where is the debater of this age? In that age, the people of that time period valued style, form, not necessarily content. But Paul's given the content of the word. So he takes these questions and he poses a question in return. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Question mark. And now he launches into a very profound state. And I don't want you to miss it. Because he gives you the scriptural background in verse 19. And the rhetorical questions in verse 20. And now the crucial response to all this in 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. Isn't that fascinating? Read it real slow. For since in the wisdom of God, 
The world did not know God through wisdom. Does that mean that God is unknowable? Flip it around. It pleased God through the folly of what? There's the content we preach to save those who believe. When I was beginning in the pastorate, when I left medicine for the ministry, in my opening years, I had the opportunity to speak on an Easter Sunday morning. Six o'clock, I still remember it clearly. Sunrise service. And as I looked out over that gathering, if you've ever been in what they call an ecumenical gathering, you know that there are a lot of unbelievers there that value unity and value tolerance, and boy, did they pick the wrong guy to speak. Though I might have looked the part back I had a ponytail as a pastor, believe it or not. About five minutes before I got up to speak, I realized that the one who was leading the so-called worship experience had selected music that primarily emphasized the humanity of Christ, the teaching ability of Christ, and the example of Christ, but had intentionally not emphasized or even give us opportunity to sing about the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, and it is Easter Sunday morning, 6 o'clock. What is a pastor to do? I had to give four different messages that day, four different passages, four different texts. And I had come prepared for the six o'clock one, and I realized five minutes before I was to get up to speak, the passage that I had chosen was not the one that was going to work. But God in his sovereignty allowed me to have four different passages prepared for that Easter Sunday, where I would speak from 6 in the morning till 7 at night. So I flipped one, and I opted to go with one that I would have given later in that Easter Sunday, because I thought it would have more direct bearing upon, upon what was happening. So as I looked out over the crowd, I... Uh, Noted the fact, furthermore, most did not have Bibles except those that came from our congregation. We were in New England. But what was bearing on my mind, I chose 1 Corinthians 15 as the passage I would use, was to somehow communicate the cross through the empty tomb. I'm going to have to connect crucifixion, resurrection. And the book entitled that by Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse was just way on my heart at that second as I prayed. I got up to speak, and it's very difficult as an expositor to speak when people don't have Bibles, particularly at 6 in the morning. 
And so I do my best to reason this through and to connect dots for people between what Christ as the great teacher said with regard to his cross, what Christ the great example did to prepare for that cross, and how the resurrection of Jesus Christ validated the power of that cross. And I just prayed, God, do something here. There was a man sitting out there who had his arms like this. And I noticed that his wife next to him was praying. But I saw the body language changing. The next week, he was sitting out there with a Bible in hand, second row from the front in one of our morning services. In the following weeks, he had other people sitting with him. A month later, a very handsome couple were sitting with him and his wife. I looked out as I was speaking, and I said, I know that man somewhere, somehow. There, I've seen his picture before, he and his wife. Afterwards, when I was done speaking, and I was speaking First Peter 3 that day, I can still remember it, First Peter 3, 1 through 7. The man approached me, this handsome man and his wife, and said, thank you so much. My name is Dr. Kent Hughes, who happened to be the senior pastor of College Church of Wheaton. And Kent shared with Pam and me that he and his wife Barbara were praying at that hour of that morning as he himself was involved in prepping for an Easter sunrise service that his brother-in-law would come to save him faith. That's the power of God. That is not the wisdom of humanity which attempted to thwart that early morning Easter sunrise service from having true effect. That is the power of God dismantling the wisdom of this world, you see. Now, when you and I begin to embrace this, we're able to see that the functions of the cross are such that it divides. It separates the perishing from those being saved. But furthermore, it confronts challenging the wisdom of the world with God's word. But there is a third function, and it flows now out of verse 22 through 25. It's this, that the cross of Jesus Christ reveals reveals, demonstrating the power and the wisdom of God. So now, Paul takes note of the landscape around him. And he says this with regard to Jews. In verse 22, for Jews demand signs. Stop right there. Now, you know and I know that that was one of the big issues that Jesus Christ had to confront time and time again. Why, in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus said, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. In response to something said by the Pharisees, Teacher, we wish to see a sign But you see, even in today's culture, people are looking for a sign. 
and it usually follows along the lines of, if you, speaking to God, if you save me from that bad decision in the past, then I'll believe. If you get me out of this medical dilemma, then I'll believe. If you find me a different way to provide food for the table, then I believe. But the if yous are simply another way of illustrating this whole matter of seeking and demanding, in fact, a sign, it's as if we become involved in some kind of marionette presentation where we're pulling the strings and expecting God to move, you see. We can't demand of God. Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. That phrase found in verse 22 means that they were erecting structures of thought absent the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul would write to the Romans in the same decade, to the Jew first and also to the Greek Gentile. He's got the same thought processes here, of course, but now he then offers contrast in verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block, Greek word, skandalon, to the Jews, folly to the Gentiles. But now in his sovereign work in verse 24 articulates, but to those who are called, that's God's sovereign work. Look for the word called in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. It appears again and again and again. But to those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles, Extracting believers from both camps. Christ, the power of God, Deutimus, and the wisdom of God, Sophia. And now what Paul does through the working of the Holy Spirit is he sets up a sense of comparisons, doesn't he? Comparing God to humanity wanting to demonstrate the sovereignty of God. Look for the comparables. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. It's powerful. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. I believe that Christians need to be deeply entrenched in God's word and deeply aware of God's world. In Peggy Noonan's book, When Character Was King, she tells about a meeting between President George Bush at that time and President Vladimir Putin of Russia. It was their first meeting as world leaders. Bush, she says, wanted to be sure they connected. That they looked for depth of soul and character, not simply a political meeting. 
Bush had his advisors read up on Putin and found that there was a story about Putin. His mother had given him, Putin, a Christian cross that Putin had taken to Jerusalem with him, asking some, for some reason to be, have it blessed. But Bush had been touched by that story, says Peggy Noonan, and so he brought up this story, and Putin then responded. He told President Bush that he, Putin, had taken to wearing the cross and one day had set it down in a house he had been visiting. Strangely, the house had burned down. And all Putin could think about was that cross lost in the rubble. So he motioned for a worker to come to him so he could ask him to look for the cross. And the worker walked over to Putin, stretched out his hand, and showed him the already recovered cross, quote, unquote. Putin told Bush, it was as if someone meant for me to have the cross. Bush said, Mr. Putin, President Putin, that's what life is all about. It's the story of the cross. It divides. It confronts. It reveals. But it reveals that we're saved only by God's grace and for God's glory. Let's pray. We allow you a word to prepare our hearts to receive these elements. We're thanking you, Father, for the cross of Jesus Christ. It moves in such unique ways, penetrating hearts in such diverse ways, but with the singular message that the sovereign God of the universe has paved the way for salvation, but it is through the work of Christ and Christ alone. So, Father, as we sing and as we then take of these elements, I pray we'll do so worshipfully, thoughtfully, reflectively, allowing for the cross to speak to our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name.